Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm a senior editor of the Oxford Journal Global Symmetry. Today, we continue our examination of Shaking the Global Order, U.S. Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump with an interview with Nick Beasley. Nick is the executive director of La Trobe Asia and a professor of international relations at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. He is currently, as well, the editor-in-chief of the Australian Journal of International Affairs, the country's oldest scholarly journal in the field of international relations, and he's also the director of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. I look forward to this discussion about U.S. foreign policy in the age of Trump, particularly because it takes us to a perspective, which is Australia. So let's welcome Nick. So welcome, Nick. Hi, good to be with you. All right, so uh, let's start off by looking at kind of the bigger question of the liberal order. The liberal order, you know, certainly for the last decades, it's been assumed that America has kind of taken a leading role. Uh, President Clinton referred to the United States as the indispensable nation, and presidents since then have often made reference to it. Recently, our, our colleague wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs. This is Professor John Eikenberry, and he uh, said, across ancient and modern eras, orders built by great powers have come and gone, but they have usually ended in murder and not in suicide. And so uh, the question I have is, how do you think the liberal order is likely to respond to uh, President Trump and his uh, America first foreign policy? Yeah, the Eichenberg the, the image is a strong one, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the sense had always been, and certainly John and, and others um, have written quite persuasively about how you know, the order is, it, it's got a lot of robustness around it. It's open, it's fluid, it can incorporate people. And that's the, what's that great line? It's, it's easy to join and hard to overturn. And I think all of that was premised on the assumption that America would always be this kind of the, the pillars, the foundations, the, the, the you know, structural core of it was never questioned. And I think what you've got in Trump is an administration that I think for the first time since the Second World War is at best ambivalent about that order, if not certainly part of the administration, openly hostile to it. I think the question of how it's going to evolve, though, will really depend on quite how Trump ends up running his, quote-unquote, America first foreign policy, because, you know, we're, we're recording this, what, just a little over 100 days in, mm-hmm. and the kind of foreign policy Trump's running, to the extent to which it's being run, is frankly all over the place. You know, it, it we've seen on the one hand in Asia... From, the, from day one, you know, the talking to the Taiwanese, the talking tough on China, we're going to name China a currency manipulator, all this sort of stuff, which seemed to seriously worry people across the region and, and signal potentially a big shift away from from that stability of the liberal order and, and the values kind of that are at the heart of it. But since then, you know, slowly you've had these reassurance tours, you know, um, Secretary Mattis. Uh, Rex Tillerson, then Vice President Pence have come around the region saying, no, no, it's all okay, we mean what we say, there's not going to be any real change, don't worry. And that itself is kind of odd that you've, you had to do that in the first three months to say, no, no, it's all okay. 
But it seems that the the administration is drifting towards a kind of more status quo orientation in which, and, now, and that, that may just be a function of inertia, you know, the ship of state is, is big and heavy and turns around slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be, as some speculate, you know, there's, there's a, a, a pretty significant struggle within the administration between the America Firsters um, and the quote-unquote grown-ups, which the grown-ups seem to have the upper hand at the moment. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, but either way, I mean, I think that the real issue is either way you look at it, the underlying problems that the liberal order faces, mm-hmm. um, which have been really brought to the surface by Trump, are actually quite long running. And I think the mistake is to look at Trump and think, oh gosh, here's the first time the liberal order faces significant problems. There's been, you know, I think the in some respects you could argue that the Obama administration's foreign policy represented uh, an attempt, a fairly sophisticated attempt, to scale back the way in which America thinks about its interests and, and underneath that, the way a less expansive vision for the liberal order to try to get others to help out and support it and to lower expectations about what America could do to advance it. And of course, the part of the reason for that is the rise of China and the downright, I think, hostility towards the liberal order beyond a kind of really basic sense of a liberal order as a means to manage trade and, and, and the like. But, you know, the PRC is pretty uneasy with the particular, the more liberal elements of the, of the international order. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, it was already in a, not as a strong a position as some might have realised. I think what Trump has brought to the surface is first, firstly, made us realise the fragility of it. Secondly, it's made us realise that orders don't last forever, and, and that at some point it will come to an end. It may come, it may end in murder, surprisingly, seem to potentially end in suicide, but it will end. And I think certainly from an Australian point of view, we've been. I think shocked by the extent to which, not the, by the extent to which Trump represents this massive break with the past, but I think shocked by the extent to which we had come to assume that the US would always think about its place in the world in the same way that it has for the past 75 years. And what Trump shows us is that's a complacent set of beliefs. So the liberal order, I think, we don't know exactly how Trump's going to play America first, but I think how he slice it, it's it's you know, the liberal order is facing some challenges. And when the central load bearing pillar of that order is questioning it, then it's really in for some tough times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to ask you a question about China, but I'd like to turn immediately to Australia. Um, As you know, one of the first forays that the president uh, took was a series of phone calls in February. And one of those calls was to your prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, from most accounts, some, you know, toing and froing on it, but from most accounts, it appeared that that conversation did not go well. Uh, now, I understand that the Prime Minister, in fact, will be meeting with the President in the next short while in New York, so this is a face-to-face. What do you think Australia's leaders, uh, first of all, took away from the telephone call, but then... Uh, what do they hope a face-to-face meeting might be able to achieve for U.S.-Australia relations? Yeah, the, the phone call you know, shortly after the inauguration was a real wake-up call. In fact, in Australia, it was funny because it had been the, – the readout that we got here was, oh, well, it had gone well. And the centerpiece was about you know, this refugee – this, frankly, pretty unseemly refugee swap where we've got these refugees detained offshore – um, as a way of controlling um, unregulated population flows. 
and a deal had been struck with the Obama administration um, about swapping some refugees from the, I think from Latin America, swapping mm -hmm. ours, basically mm -hmm. swapping ours to theirs um, for reasons I couldn't quite, the, the logic of it, I'm quite, I've never quite sort of got my head around. Anyway, that was the, and the phone call, um, Turnbull essentially after saying, you know, nice to, nice to meet you, Mr. President, by the phone, and well done, your election victory now, is does this refugee deal hold? And it turns out Trump hadn't been briefed about it. And it's like, what what deal? Refugees? You know, and of course, that's his, his political antenna was twitching like crazy. Refugee deal? Obama? What, what, what? And absolutely, apparently, by all accounts, absolutely went ballistic and hung up on, um, on Turnbull. But the thing is, we got this readout for the first day saying, it went well, fine, the deal is going to be recognised. Uh, and then for whatever reason, it was leaked out of D.C. that that was, in fact, not how things went and that it, it had gone spectacularly badly. And so the, for, for Australian leaders, there was this this was a real oh, crap moment because firstly, um, you know, you're like, geez, what we've heard about Trump seems to be true, that this guy is mercurial, at, you know, and, and you don't know what you're going to get. Secondly, that an Australian prime minister is going to be treated like this. Good God, you know, what, 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 and then we've, what happened to all of that capital we've been building up over 70 years or whatever since we've had, had the alliance. Um, and, and also the fact that we didn't, you know, just from a practical point of view, the leadership suddenly realized, you know, we don't know what this guy's like. And then because he comes out of that political, come, comes out of that, not out of the political mainstream, the sort of, um, you know, in-country stuff that your diplomats do to say, okay, if you're handling this president, talk to him about this, don't talk to him about that. You know, all of that basic intel that you get about how to handle these meetings, didn't have, they didn't have any of it because there was no way in, the, you know, the, the embassy in, in D.C. seemed to have very very few um, ways into the White House. So there was a whole range of things from, from big picture, good God, what's this relationship actually like, down to just the, the minutiae of handling a, a, an interaction. So... So they've got a meeting coming up, which will apparently be prior to the big set piece um, in New York to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Coral Sea. And I, I, one would assume there'll be a bunch of other bilateral face-to-face -face meetings with um, with President Trump. But Turnbull, you know, he's he's finally getting his his moment in the sun with if that's the right word for it with um, President Trump. Yeah. I reckon there's kind of there's sort of four things they're going to try to do, or they ought to be doing. Probably the most important one, um, and it's probably the hardest one, is for Trump and or for, for Turnbull to, push, to have, try to develop a good rapport with Trump. Uh, and it's something that most allies and democratic other democratic leaders have found difficult. So if you think about whether it's Merkel, whether it's even Theresa May um, or others, you know they've found just dealing with this guy difficult. He's for a whole range of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, the only democratic leader, ally leader, who seems to be able to handle him well and, and, and kind of work, have, have a, a good working relationship is Prime Minister Shinzo Abe from Japan. So, um, so he's, and, and the key to it seems to be around that personal connection. You, know, make, you need to make a personal link to Trump um, and figure out how to get along with him. And then once you do, you know, he seems to be quite, um, you know, you can, one can quite unquote do business with him. Uh, as we've seen, as we saw with President Xi, you know, the, Trump has gone 180 degrees on, on China because of what seems to be a, a good rapport that they've built up. So rapport, I think, is really important. Um, the second thing is, you know, and, and more, more substantively is about, you know, we saw these reassurance tours in Asia from an Australian point of view. It's the what does Trump actually think? Okay, Pence has come out, 
Tillerson's come out, Matters has come out to the region saying, don't worry, they're there, it's all okay, we'll, we'll be like we were in the past, you know, we'll be tougher than that Obama chap, but, you know, don't, don't worry, we're not going away. Um, but we don't know what Trump actually thinks. And, you know, the way he's talking now about North Korea, about China, you know, who knows where he's going to go. And I think that what's the gap that exists between Trump as decision maker and his cabinet secretaries and the machinery of government. So that kind of getting a sense of is the status quo going to be sustained or not? Um, the third thing, of course, is and, and related to that is the what is um, what is Trump's thinking on Asia and thinking about allies in general, but the, the Asian alliances in particular, what role are the allies going to be expected to play? The kind of transactional realism that, that's often been talked about at the heart of Trump's foreign policy. Is this, is this how they're actually going to view things? Are we going to be asked to pay for more, do more and all that sort of stuff? Um, and the final thing will be around the sort of policy specifics to do with most obviously North Korea, um, China policy and, and also trade, because I think for Australia, you know, we're a liberal trading country. We're pretty spooked by the idea of the return of mercantilism. We're mm -hmm. seriously spooked about the idea of a trade. Not, not, I mean, no one thinks a trade war with China is going to happen. But, you know, if there's steel tariffs, if there's if there's some disruption of one form or another, this could really come and bite us. And particularly if, you know, they push back on China on steel, you know, there's all that. You know, two th I mean, it's about two thirds of Australian trade to China is, is iron ore. Mm -hmm. And that's all going Chinese steel. Um, so if there's a if there's an attempt to sort of punish China, the Chinese steel industry, then we will be pretty serious um, collateral damage in that in that trade contest. So I think the PM's got to figure out what, where does Trump stand on this stuff and where are they likely to go. And again, you see this tension playing out between the the minutians, kind of Republican mainstream view of this stuff, and the and the nativists in in and around the, the office of the president who. A sort of tugging, there's that tug of war between those who want to see, you know, mercantilism back on the table and those who are pretty uneasy about it. So, so Prime Minister Turnbull has a um, has a long shopping list, and I'm not sure how much time he's actually got, but there's a lot to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think? What do Australian leaders? Uh, how are they reacting? And and obviously, foreign policy experts, how are they reacting as well? To this, as you've talked about it, some of the difficulties of kind of developing relationship with the democratic leaders, but seemingly this smoothness that he has with autocrats, right? Uh, the Dutertes, the the even his comments recently about King Jong Un, you know, uh, obviously for the several months this, or during the election. The Putin uh, kind of view. I mean, what do Australian leaders think this is about? Yeah, I, they're genuinely puzzled, and I think part of it is still, like everyone, we're still trying to figure out just what Trump is, and you know, the fact that, as as people who who watched him for a long time point out, you know, he's long had a fascination with and liked authoritarian leaders. He sort of, and not just because he, and not just because I think he has this sort of instinctive authoritarianism and he likes big strong men, but you know, he's. He, you know, he comes out of that, you know, the, the, I think he comes out of that school of thought that you see that you, it, there's been knocking around in democracies for a long time, which is, you know, this, you know, if, if strong minded, strong willed businessmen ran the world and everything would be okay and put away political correctness and bloody human rights, all this sort of crap. And, and we can, and these guys like Putin and Duterte and, um, um, I've just gone blank, the guy in Turkey, um, Erdogan. Erdogan. Yep. And these guys get stuff done. 
and you know, and we respect them for getting stuff done. So that, but that really, you know, and, and for Australia as a card-carrying member of the liberal international order, that that we have a hell of a lot invested in it, and not just substantively, but rhetorically, we've recently really, you know, to the centre of our white defence white paper, Julie Bishop's put, you know, put the markers down publicly in the region in a number of recent speeches. Um, that this is pretty disconcerting, and I think. I think what what we're all trying to work out is how much of this is going to shape American policy, and how much of this is going is just Trumpian atmospherics. Because I think there is that sense that we're we're try, still trying to figure it out, but I think increasingly we we know that there's a lot of we can just discount a lot of what American what this president says, and that's oh, I've never had a world in which you, you don't take what the American president says seriously. But that's <laughs> kind of where we're in at the moment. That's sort of okay. He tweets all this. We said so basically discount the tweets, but also discount a bunch of stuff. And just you know, and and there's often you know these um, journalists who ask him leading questions because they want a kind of neat gotcha moment, like you know. So are you going to pull out of NAFTA? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. You know, yeah. so, <laughs> and then the headline is yeah, Trump pulls out of NAFTA. And I think that's so we're still trying to figure it out. But I think there there is an instinctive uneasiness, and it gets back I I, I think to that larger point I made earlier that for Australia, I think we've realized what Trump has represented is that sense that the US is, is not always going to think about the region, think about its allies, think about the role it plays in the world for the same way forever and forever and a day. And mm-hmm. that we've got to begin to think about a world in which the US acts differently. And that differently might be being more instrumental. It might be because uh, it, it looks like that really native streak isn't going to happen. But equally, you know, there, there does seem to be the potential for a kind of more Kissingerian worldview mm-hmm. in which, you know, you, you make, you know, you see the world in kind of 19th century way with the chessboard, with spheres of influence and that sort of stuff. And that for Australia is, is, is pretty disconcerting. Yeah, without question. And let me, let me direct you then to your assessment now of kind of, uh, U.S.-China relations. We've seen Tillerson meet with uh, the Chinese foreign minister and the president, uh, Xi Jinping, and we've seen the meeting, the first meeting between the Chinese president and President Trump. Uh, I suspect from your perspective, that is Australian perspective, there's no more important relationship, other than the Australia-U.S. one, but there's no more important relationship than U.S.-China. So, you know, based on the meetings we've seen to date and his backing away from the currency manipulation and that kind of thing. Is there a clear picture from the Australian perspective as to what the U.S.-China relationship is likely to be in the next while? Uh, the, the short answer is no. <laughs> Not yet. Because it's, it's moved so quickly. You know, I think that's the, the, the people talk about the sort of head-snapping moments with Trump, you know, where he, he turns on a dime mm-hmm. um, and seems to find... No, has no problem at all reconciling, you know, the inner contradictions between what he said before and what he says now. Uh, and my sense, and certainly talking to people in Canberra in the past, I was up there last week, and sort of there's this sense that it, 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 he could turn the other way just as quickly as he's turned in this direction, mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, he's very swiftly developed what appears to be a good relationship with, with Xi Jinping. Um, and has begun to he appears to begin to see the, the you know the sort of the, the positive and negative interdependencies that that um, the US and China have and, and the significance of that. 
but you, but it's it's happened so quickly, and he's got such a kind of instinctive set of concerns about you know he's, he's got that instinctive mercantilism and that and that kind of weird zero sum mm-hmm. view, weird but it's sort of very unusual to see a political elite have a zero sum view of international trade and international economic relations. In fact, international relations generally um, knocking around the corridors of power. So um, there's a fear that this could all snap back in the other direction fairly promptly if if events dictate that so but so so there's that kind of uncertainty as to how fragile all of this stuff is mm-hmm. um, but i i think on the optimistic side i think there does seem to be you know a kind of reality creeping in which is to say you know there's so much at stake for china and the us that you know the, the costs to everyone and to the world more generally of a huge disruption of a Con, real contest for, for for influence and power of the kind he talked about um, during the campaign. I think that that seems to be ebbing away. That's to say, reality is kind of creeping in, and he's got around him in in the cabinet room and in the you know, the corridors of, of power in Washington a, a consensus view, which is here's this very important relationship. We know how to make it work. We share these interests, and we can build common ground in these ways. Yes, there's there's we've got big issues in a whole bunch of areas. And, you know, I guess you could also say the unlike um, Clinton or Obama, he's going to be much easier to to sort of put the put the human rights democratization Dalai Lama stuff in a little box and not not let it bother um, the important economic what they would see as the important economic uh, and and strategic and political relationship flourish. So. And my own kind of gut instinct, I think, is that what we're likely to see in the relationship between the US and China is a kind of rough continuity with the Obama position um, with slightly more kind of wild rhetoric from Trump and unpredictable rhetoric from Trump minus a bit of strategy and a long-term planning. So, and, and I think that's, you know, if that's the best that we can hope for, it's not great, but it's, you know, it's a heck of a lot better than where we thought we might be on the 21st of January when, you know, we're all waiting for the trade war to be declared and the currency <laughs> to be slapped down. Um, and, you know, they talked, they've talked about, you know, because I think one of the one of the indicators that that you look at is was the strategic and economic dialogue that that um, they set up. You know, this huge set piece with a thousand people or whatever it was that would move back and forth to talk at, you know, across huge range of um, government functions. Mm-hmm. What was going to happen to that? And we all assumed, I think, that because it was very closely associated with Secretary Clinton, that it would be the first um, first thing on the scrap heap. Whereas it looks like they're actually going to Keep the basic mode of operation. They're going to cut it in two um, by, by all accounts and have a, um, a strategic kind of defence and security dialogue and an economic one. But the basic idea that there will continue to be a close, strong, and reasonably deep or reasonably far far down um, the bureaucratic ladders um, dialogues between the two that looks like it's going to continue. So that's a kind of heartening sign. So I think the balance of probabilities is is continuity of that. Work, you know, viable, practical working relationship between the US and China. And as you said, you're absolutely right. From Australian point of view, in fact, frankly, I think from a global point of view, it's by far the most important bilateral relationship. If it's working well, that's a good thing for the world and for the region and for Australia. If it's not, you know, watch out. <laughs> well, let, let's go to the, you know, the one, I guess, real crisis point that we have seen uh, recently. And that, of course, is the new administration really cranking up some of the tension on the Korean Peninsula with the uh, DPRK 
And I mean, what, what, how does Australia react uh, to this, you know, um, heightened rhetoric from Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and of course, uh, the President? How do they react to all of that? Um, very disconcerted by the saber rattling, mm -hmm. I think. The, uh, but, you know, it's a bit like this, you know, the expectations, because I think when, when he first came in and, the, you know, the combination of, of bomb, bombastic talk, a, a love of militarism, I mean, just an instinctive kind of likes the military and that sort of stuff, plus his thin skin, mm -hmm. you know, everyone was worried at the first sign of provocation from the North Koreans, he was going to let the missiles fly. So if that's your expectations, I think you'd look at North Korea and go, actually, it's not so bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Um, but but I think the the problem that is that we've got in the region certainly that that has people in Canberra very on edge is that the it is it's and it's got two dimensions. The first is the desire that they have to be seen to be unpredictable. You know that war. Yeah, yeah, I think it is unpredictable. So Trump's got this self conscious idea of him, of himself as the as the unpredictable deal maker, that's to say, you don't quite know where my lines are. You don't quite know where I'm going to finish up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I could do anything, you know, and I think he said in the campaign a few times, I subscribe to the, you know, the man, man theory. Right. Uh, and that this gives you an advantage. And that's, I think certainly an influence in the North Korea stuff. So you have, you know, VP Pence going to North Korea, looking, you know, looking stern into the cameras and saying, everything's on the table. Tillerson saying everything's on the table. Right. The, that bizarre interview with I can't remember maybe it was Fox News anyway it was a TV interview where he said you know we've got a we've got an armada we've got nuclear powered submarines very powerful <laughs> bizarre thing but you know sending up and of course there was that miscommunication was the Carl Vinson is steaming towards peninsula <laughs> in fact yeah. steaming towards away <laughs> um, but but the, the the concern is this saber rattling yeah. that is. That is to say, yeah, we really, you know, everything's on the table and we mean business. And, you know, there's, there's, and they're not saying red lines, but they're kind of indicating that there's something that's, that just ratchets tensions up in a way that I, that really worries everyone because, of course, it just, it in, increases the risks of accidents happening and bad things occurring. So that's kind of level one concern. The second, the deeper level concern that we've got, I think, is that everyone knows that this is, this is BS, that, that it's bluster and that, the circumstances under which the U.S. will actually use force with North Korea, uh, yeah, there's precisely one of one circumstance in which that occurs, and that's if they attack the South. Everything right. else is is not going to happen. Everyone knows it's not going to happen. Pyongyang knows it's not going to happen. Beijing knows. And in fact, the concern that we've got is the saber rattling is a problem, but the, the bigger concern is if North Korea and Beijing feel that Trump is all hot air. That he is, in fact, you know, as as the as the Republicans would, would sort of have it, he's like Obama, mm -hmm. um, and can be pushed around. Then that's bad because it'll it acts as a it emboldens the, the those parts of North Korea and China that we don't want to embolden. Um, and then worst of all, what if it gets back to, to Trump that they don't they don't take you seriously, Mr. President? They think you're full of hot air. They think you're full of bluster. And you don't mean what you say, mm -hmm. and then, you know, then then all bets and not to say all bets are off, but you know, then we're in a really really weird place. So I think that you know, there's a reason why you know that that since since 2002, when the 
you know, this, this nuclear stuff really began its current phase, um, that saber rattling has not been part of the policy mix because it's hugely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what worries Australia and I think, I think worries many in the region is that it's needless, raises the temperature when it doesn't, it has no really positive spin-offs precisely because, you know, they're trying to say everything's on the table when everyone knows everything actually isn't on the table. So it's, you know, that, that's, that's the concern that we've got. I mean, there, there is the other stuff about, you know, if, what happens if they get an ICBM and whether they, Australia is suddenly in the target sites and there's a, there's a good, good dose of strategic narcissism floating around Australia at the moment with this kind of, we could get, we could get attacked by North Korea. And there's a kind of weird, like, yeah, I reckon we will get attacked by North Korea. We're, we're really important. The North Koreans would target us. And it's, and it's a kind of weird, like, almost, almost enjoying the fact that Australia could well be in the targets. And to, <laughs> Which I think is truly absurd that, that of of the potential places that North Korea could lob its intercontinental ballistic missiles if it was so minded to do that, that they would where Australia would fit on the target list has is um, you know a long way down you know maybe top twenty but you know, <laughs> uh, but there is this stra very strange strand of thinking in Australia it happens on a range of issues it, it reminds me of this time when in I think it was about two thousand four two thousand five when there was one of the counter Al Qaeda things they caught. They found a, a bunch of Al Qaeda training um, kit in Afghanistan somewhere, and there was a target list. And, was, and I think the Sydney Harbour Bridge was like number fifteen. And we're like, see, we matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's try to then bring it all together. Then, Nick. I mean, okay. So there's the America First presumptions, highly nationalist, um, as you say. The indication uh, through this administration that the United States is not going to act or is going to act differently than it, than past administrations, much more of a zero-sum kind of perspective. Certainly, uh, some would argue in, in trade policy, but then even, you know, in terms of alliances and the way in which they're supported and so forth. So where do we end up in, let's say, four years of uh, a Trump administration in terms of the liberal order. What's it look like at the end of this four years? Or eight years. Um, yeah, I think best case scenario is that it's weakened, badly bruised, but still there and standing and kind of looking recognizably like it has looked, but it's weaker than it's been. Right. Uh, that's, that's, I think, the best case scenario. So that's a world in which then, you know, Steve Bannon's gone from the White House within the next six months. His place is taken by a more kind of out of the Republican mainstream sort of um, mold. And you get a, you still got a sort of Trumpian nationalism in there and you have these hard edges around trade. Um, and but what, but what you don't have is that advocate for and a country that's prepared to write big checks to support things at the margins of the, the liberal order. Um, and I think the problem, the, the second problem that we'll have in, in four years is that I think Trump is burning up goodwill towards America at a rapid pace. You know, he is, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. he's a guy who makes George W. Bush look popular in Germany, you know, which, <laughs> which is hard, you know, like, you, you have to say, you know, you, you sit there and think George Bush had to have been the nadir of, of American popularity abroad with Iraq and that and, and all of that stuff. And yet Trump makes him look like, you know, Ozymandias. <laughs> it's, it's, um, so I think the, 
America as example, America as representative of you know, the, the kind of embodiment, if you like, of the liberal, of what it means to be a liberal, internationally engaged state and society, um, I think is going to badly dent its legitimacy. And and as we've, you know, as we are in a world where there is a growing contestation amongst the major powers, not just for kind of influence and wiggle room, but also for leadership um, internationally. You know, we've seen Xi Jinping, you know, beginning to, you know, limber up, as it were, a Davos. Um, you know, we this kind of stretching of the back of international leadership. One suspects that that after November of this year, assuming he gets much of what he wants out of the Party Congress and he gets a, a Politburo and a Standing Committee that, that's filled with as many his people as he can get, mm-hmm. um, that you're going to begin to get a more openly ambitious China-centric kind of leadership at the international level. Um, and those two things going together, I think, will make the sort of sales job, if you like, around the liberal international order that much harder. And when you've got a, a salesman who's ambivalent about it in the form of Trump and in the leadership of the United States, then I think it's sort of broader legitimacy in place in the international system will, will, will be reduced. And, and I, so I guess that gets me to the conclusion of I don't think the next four years will be terminal for the liberal international order, but I think it will be in decline. And as the years go on, I think it's standing as this set of ideas that have been very much at the epicenter of the international system for seven decades or so, um, that is going to be questioned. And I think it will, it won't be gone. It won't collapse in a heap. um, But the the stresses and strains that it already has, and there's plenty of them um, will be exacerbated. And I think that, and, and what I think more than anything that Trump has done, as I was kind of alluding to about my comments from from Australian point of view, is mm-hmm. what Trump has done has brought us, made us kind of realise that these things don't last forever, mm-hmm. uh, and that it has been very dependent on America, both in terms of the mechanics and the finances of it, you know, the role played by the U.S. currency, the role played by its leadership in open, opening up its markets but also to its leadership in the form of advocacy and its representation and its and all of that stuff. And that, that um, that's going, you know, and, and it went, and I guess the, the point is we now know it's going to end. It probably isn't going to end under Trump. In fact, I'd be really surprised if it ended under Trump, like if we had a real systemic collapse, uh, you can't rule these things out. It's such a, you know, <laughs> we're in this world like, eh, that won't happen all of a sudden. Like, well, maybe, I guess it could happen. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I think prob- in you know probabilistic terms, I think it's pretty unlikely the next four years over the next eight years. But we now know that there is a sense at which this thing can actually come to an end because, you know, to, to sort of t- touch back where we started with John Eikenbury, mm-hmm. the working assumption of everyone who's looked at liberal international order had always been that the U.S. would always be committed to it and the U.S. would always be the sort of it would be the last last man standing, if you like, and that if it were to come to an end. It was going to be because it got overthrown directly or indirectly by by challenges, and I think what we've seen with Trump and certainly that core of his vote domestically um, is that there is a deep unease about what the liberal international order stands for. And there's that line that always I think resonates for me more than any other that Steve Bannon said, and I can't, remember, can't work out. I'm trying to find out where he said it for the first time, but but you know this. He said, you know, the globalists, which by him you know, was just this sort of derogatory term that they try to use to describe essentially kind of people who support the liberal international order. The globalists have, have 
taken a middle class from America and given it to China. And I think that encapsulates the domestic unease in the US about the kind of role that the US has played. And Trump has shown how you can parlay that very real unease at, at, within the US about the global order into mm -hmm. high office. Um, and if he is re-elected, then you've got to reckon that he's, he's, he's got a pretty solid chance of it. Um, just statistically speaking, he's got a good chance of being re-elected. Then at the end of eight years, I think the liberal international order, and assuming he continues to operate in this sort of broadly nativist trend without the sharp edges of America firstism, um, then the liberal international order will start to be looking pretty badly bashed up in eight years. But you know, that's, that's a long way off. <laughs> well, it's a kind of, I suppose, a slow motion suicide uh, rather than a swift ending or collapse that some might contemplate, certainly. Well, thanks very much, Nick, for joining us. Uh, well, <laughs> my evening, your morning. Uh, and <laughs> I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll check back in four years and see how the predictions go. Thanks. Um, okay. We should check back in before four years to see how, <laughs> how we're tracking. Okie dokie. That sounds good to me. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony C, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com. Thank you.